Is there anybody here with us tonight? Can you make a noise to let us know that you're here? Can't sleep? You came to the right place. Cozy in, because we have an eerie night ahead of us. I'm Sydney. And I'm JC. And we are not afraid. Good evening, everybody, or morning or afternoon or whatever. It doesn't matter. We are Graveyard Tales. Now, if you like ghost stories, hauntings, cryptid encounters, and the weird history behind them, then you should join us in the graveyard. You can find us on any of your favorite podcast providers. Check out our website at graveyardpodcast.com and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at GRV. Uh, just go search Graveyard Tales. That would be easier. Now, we hope to see you in the graveyard. Most people know about big city haunts, like New Orleans' St. Louis Cemetery, or Gettysburg's Battlefield, or even most of Savannah, Georgia's housing, which is built right on top of Indian burial ground. But a lot of people don't know about small town haunts, like the Marina, Florida's Bell Amy Bridge Heritage Trail, or Prospect Place in Trimway, Ohio. And that's what we're here to discuss today. But first, what's the difference between a small town and a large town, Sydney? So the National Center for Education Statistics, or NCES, develops geographical data for the purpose of evaluating schools and their communities. They use four classifications of communities, suburban, town, city, and rural, as defined by the U.S. Census Bureau. They define towns in the following ways. A large town is an incorporated place or census-designated place, with a population greater than or equal to 25,000 and located outside a metropolitan area. A small town, on the other hand, is an incorporated place or census-designated place with a population less than 25,000 and greater than or equal to 2,500 and located outside a metropolitan area. They also split towns into three different categories, remote being territory inside an urban cluster, that is more than 35 miles from an urbanized area, a fringe town, which is a territory inside an urban cluster that is less than or equal to 10 miles from an urbanized area, and a distant town, which is a territory inside an urbanized cluster that is more than 10 miles and less than or equal to 30 miles from an urbanized area. Urbanized area in their terms is a town or a city with 50,000 or more people. And an urbanized cluster is a location of at least 2,500 and less than 50,000 people. And rural, they use that term to encompass all population housing and territory not included within an urban area. So if it's not considered in an urbanized area or cluster, it would be considered a rural area. So we are going to use the word small town loosely tonight because not all of our selected locations are small towns by definition, but are far from being considered an urban city. These places have, they are 
close enough to being a small town because if we're looking into an urban area, these are places that are over 100,000 people and a lot of times way more. So these places are still small in the grand scheme of things and relatively unknown to people who aren't locals. The first town on our list tonight is by definition, a small remote town located in North Central Ohio. As of July, 2019, the population of Galleon, Ohio is estimated at 9,982 people and has been declining in recent years. Galleon was established on September 10th, 1831. And by 1851, the population began to soar and industry boomed due to the completion of two railroad lines through town. Local mill operator and state legislature, Aza Hosford, is credited as being the, quote, father of Galleon for his part in helping bring the railroad to town. When I was in high school, I spent over 100 hours volunteering at the Galleon Historical Society, in which I worked in the archives department, accessioning, and on occasion, cleaning slash restoring artifacts. In that time, I learned a lot more about the history of my hometown, much of which corroborated the ghost stories I had heard growing up. For a town my size, we had lots of reportedly haunted locations, including, but not limited to, the Gill House, the Big Four Depot, the Hosford House, and most famously, Brunella Cottage, of which I have had the opportunity to investigate the Gill House once and Brunella Cottage twice. So first, I want to talk to you a little bit about the Gill House because that's the place that I have investigated most recently. So it's a little fresher in my mind. The Gill House um, was visited supposedly by Thomas Edison and Henry Ford, who were friends of the Gill family, after the funeral of President Warren G. Harding, which would not have been far away from where I lived, from uh, where Gill House is located. And the Gill House is also reportedly built on or near Native American burial grounds. So I couldn't really find any evidence to corroborate that, but I know that's sort of a rumor in the area. Um, so it's very possible, but not set in stone, but it is reportedly haunted by a Native American who hangs out in the basement. Other reports include a dust ball-like sighting on the second floor and an entity in the attic that likes to play ball. Um, I wasn't there as long as I would have liked to have been. Uh, however, I would like to go back, so I don't have any personal experiences or evidence to share with you that happened to me while at the Gill House, but that doesn't mean that it isn't haunted. So, um, if you're new to the paranormal field, you don't always get things when you want to. Ghosts don't always come out and play on command because um, it's not like they're on a, a schedule or, you know, a paid timestamp or anything. So um, I would like to go back and I would recommend it to anybody, especially somebody who is just starting out into the field, because it's not a 250,000 square foot building like a lot of these places are. Um, you don't go in there knowing the history and all of this evidence because it's been on a hundred TV shows. It's kind of unique in that way. So, um, and it is large, it's a large house, but it's a lot less overwhelming, especially if you're just getting into the field than walking into a 250,000 square foot building. So I would recommend it because personally, I would like to go back. Place number two, Brunella Cottage, a little bit more famous because I believe it has been on my ghost story. So it has been had some TV time, but outside of the state of Ohio, most people probably are not aware of this building. So Brunella Cottage was the home of Bishop William Brown and wife Ella Brown. Bishop Brown is famous in Galleon history because he was tried for heresy 
1924-1925 and is also rumored to be a supporter of communism, as indicated by the decal on the floor of the walkway in his home. He and Ella both reportedly haunt the home in various ways. My two investigations of this place were in high school, so I had little experience at the time. It was very structured in that we were led by paranormal investigators. We couldn't just go off on our own. It wasn't just me and three other people, okay? So um, I went there with my tennis team. There were quite a bit of us in there. It wasn't the best environment to produce paranormal activity, but I can recall some activity throughout the home from both of those two times. So the biggest piece of evidence or the biggest personal experience that I had happen in my two ghost hunts there was the flashlight trick. And so before I explain what happened, I would like to explain what that is if you're not familiar with it. And so this is something that's kind of controversial amongst investigators because some people believe it, some people don't, and that's fine. That's up for you to decide. I'm not here to tell you one way or the other. But as a high school student, that was a pretty cool experience uh, for us to have, in my opinion. So the flashlight trick is when you have a flashlight, one of those where you have to turn the end of it in order to turn it on or off and it changes the intensity, it has to be one of those. Okay. And so the idea behind it is you're supposed to set it to where it doesn't take a lot of energy to turn the flashlight on, but the flashlight is still off. So you sort of set it right between on and off. And then you lay it on a surface back away and you ask questions. And if there's an entity there with you, in theory, they should be able to turn the flashlight on or turn the flashlight off on command. And then you can ask questions. Um, another take on this would be if you set out one or two or three flashlights, and then you can have a yes and a no, um, you could tell them to turn on the one in the middle or the one on the left or the one on the right. And a lot of investigators say that's a little bit more convincing. So that's another th way you could do this. But we just had one at the time. And this did work for us indirect responses to our questions in Ella's bedroom. So I don't remember, it's been a long time, exactly what we had said but I remember being there and asking questions and then immediately the flashlight would turn on and then it would turn off. And then we would ask another question and then it would turn on and then it would turn off. So pretty cool experience. Again, I'm not saying definitively that Ella's ghost was in there turning that flashlight on for us. I'm just saying this happened and it was kind of cool. That is extremely interesting. We're going to have to take a trip to your hometown sometime soon. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really have as much information on my own hometown. Um, just because uh, when it comes to history and hauntings, the history of Millersburg is very, very shared and very widely known. Um, for the most part, it was just a small community trading post, really nothing major, very super spectacular. But there is a lot that really went on with Millersburg back in the day and especially even today. Millersburg is crazy haunted but for the most part if you ask locals uh, they'll either give you like kind of a strange look, they won't give you a strange answer, or they won't really give you an answer or they'll just tell you to kind of shove off completely uh, which is really odd because we have so many antique shops around and even a Victorian house where locals can drop off pieces of history. My family included has a couple of pieces stored away in the Victorian house. So you would assume with all of that historical stuff around that there would be something there that people would want to talk about, want to discuss, and but no. 
and it's not for any dark reason whatsoever. In all honesty, it's just because of the large population of elderly women that we have. And a lot of businesses do not want to run them off because Millersburg's seen as a very cute and quaint town that nobody really expects that kind of thing to go on. It's your very traditional old Christian ladies and men, like hardworking community nobody talks about that kind of stuff it's very very taboo but of course uh, this never stops the hauntings from actually happening growing up there have been plenty of paranormal investigators that have tried to get into these locations some with luck others not so much one of the places that a lot of people try to get into and very very rarely ever do is the hotel millersburg the hotel millersburg has a lot of activity that goes on within its walls uh from waking guests up uh in the middle of the night footsteps in the hallway your hair being tugged on there's all kinds of stuff that happens not only in that portion but in the tavern as well some of the uh, older cooks that have been there uh, have reported the banging of pots and pans while no one else is in the kitchen. But this is only after they are either let go or they decide to leave the jobs themselves. While they are on the jobs, they are instructed to not speak about paranormal activity whatsoever, once again, due to that large elderly population that's not a fan of it. But other places also include the Holmes County Trail. That's a big one. That's said to be haunted by so many different things, honestly, that it's kind of hard to keep track of. Native Americans, little boys and girls, just full-grown adults. Just There have been all kinds of things seen around that area. The Victorian House is another great one. That is antique central, basically. It's gorgeous in there. There are so many different rooms and you never know what you're really going to find there. But the most important thing about the Victorian house is, like I said, that it's mostly where locals can come to drop off their uh, antiques, uh, family heirlooms, if they have no one else to pass them down to. So there's a lot of energy within that area. I've only ever been in there once. And when I was younger, I was told that they faked a lot of their paranormal investigations around Halloween time. But as someone who has always been able to kind of sense the paranormal and whatnot around me, it felt very, very heavy when I went into that area. There was definitely something going on. The air was electric. I do remember that. I also remember my teacher telling me that ghosts weren't going to come out in the middle of the day, especially because they did not like children. Uh, that killed me. <laughs> <laughs> Another big one, though, is the courthouse, which actually used to be a uh, an old school. It was an old Catholic school at one point in time. And it's said at night that there is an elderly nun that walks around carrying a lantern, checking on the children as they're sleeping, which is pretty cool. Um, but for the most part, if you want to investigate in Millersburg, you've got to have the right connections because like I said, mostly everybody you turn to is going to give you a weird look, turn a blind eye, or just not even interact with you whatsoever. People really aren't about that stuff where I'm from. But like I said, it does not stop the hauntings from happening. <laughs> they do what they want when they want. Yeah, for sure. So um, like I said about the ghosts not clocking in when they when you want them to, they, they're going to do their own thing. Whether you believe they're there or not is not going to change whether they're there or not. It might might help you sleep better at night, um, but that is mm -hmm. not going to change the way they do things. 
So if you are not yet convinced to go searching for spirits in small town America, let me tell you about this place called Alton, Illinois. And I hope I pronounced that right. If you're from Alton and I screwed that up, please reach out and let me know. But Alton, Illinois is considered by many to be one of the most haunted small towns in America with reported hauntings at McPike Mansion, Mineral Springs Hotel, the First Unitarian Church, and Milton School, among others. And so Alton is located at the meeting of the Mississippi, Missouri, and Illinois rivers with ties to the Underground Railroad, the Civil War, and it is not far from Route 66. So if you just unpack everything I just said, and you're still questioning whether this place is haunted and I haven't even told you anything, then yeah, just get going. Because if you're familiar with the paranormal, you know that water in general, um, particularly like creeks and streams and stuff, but any sort of moving water, it is, it is a theory that any sort of moving water sort of produces um, sort of like energy and is really a great place for spirits to be because they can use that energy and they can help uh, manifest and manipulate things. So they're right at the meeting place of the Mississippi, the Missouri, and the Illinois rivers. So that's, you know, one check in the box. And then I also said they are, um, they have locations that have ties to both the Underground Railroad and the Civil War. Okay, that's, that's another check in the box. And then you've also got Route 66 thrown in there. So this is just like a big blender of here's everything you need to have paranormal activity and Alton's got it. And so Alton is 18 miles north of St. Louis. It has approximately 26,208 people as of July 2019 and is part of the St. Louis metro area. So NCES would classify Alton as a very small suburb because it has less than 100,000 people, but it is part of the St. Louis metro area. But in my research, I did find several articles pro proclaiming Alton to be a small town and not only a small town, the most haunted small town. So that is how it is viewed by at least some locals, which is how it makes it in our episode. I know it's got more than 25,000, barely. Um, I know it's in the St. Louis metro area, but at least from their viewpoint, it seems that they don't really view this as a big booming suburb. They do kind of view this as a small town sensation. Okay, so that's, again, how it makes it in here and how we're looking at it. And so a little bit about the history I could find from Alton, Illinois. I haven't been here. It's on my list. I'm going to try and go. Um, but from the research that I was able to find, there was an abolitionist and an editor named Elijah P. Lovejoy who was murdered on November the 7th, 1837 by an angry mob of pro-slavery people from Missouri. Remember, they're not too far north of St. Louis. So an angry mob of pro-slavery people from Missouri. And Elijah was defending his fourth printing press from being destroyed. The first three had already been destroyed. He did not want this fourth one to be destroyed. So basically he goes down with the printing press and is murdered by this mob. Also, Illinois has connections to Abraham Lincoln, Illinois being the land of Lincoln. Lincoln did spend time in this town as a young lawyer. And this is also the site of the final Lincoln-Douglas debate. So there's that connection as well. It is also home to Robert Wadlow, who is the tallest man in the tallest documented man in America, and the jazz musician Miles Davis. So there's 
it's not necessarily an unknown town like both JC and I come from. We don't really have a lot of famous people coming out of there. Um, but out to a lot of people outside this area, because I had never heard of it until I did the research, it is a lesser known town. It's not like people out in California are like, yeah, Alton, Illinois, that's the place to go. So again, it, it's not your New Orleans. It's not your Savannah. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the hauntings that I could find. Again, not personal experiences, haven't been there, but according to the reports, this first one, McPike Mansion, there are reports of orbs, balls of light, and people appearing in photos. Again, I'm not here to validate this for you, just to share with you, these are supposedly the things that go on at McPike Mansion. Uh, at the First Unitarian Church, there are claims of voices, shadow figures, and the piano playing. It is also worth noting that the church burnt down twice and that the minister, one of the ministers, uh, hung himself in the doorway of his study. So there certainly seems to be the elements at the First Unitarian Church for potential uh, hauntings there. At the Milton School, they claim to hear footsteps, see the apparition of a young girl, they believe that this young girl might be a girl who was found dead in the bathroom with battered and beaten clothes. Now, I couldn't find any information on what exactly they think happened. It still seems to kind of be a mystery of what happened there, but they believe she was murdered because she was, again, found in the bathroom with battered and beaten clothes. And so in today's time, they do hear footsteps and see the apparition of a young girl. It's not a hard connection to make. We can't obviously guarantee that, but that is the connection that they're trying to make there. So there are all sorts of haunted tours offered in Alton at some of these locations, and there's different like cemetery and ghost walks, and there is actually more than a dozen rumored haunted locations. Um, some of these include the first state penitentiary in Illinois, which was opened in 1833, was in Alton. And by 1861, this became the Alton Federal Military Prison for Confederate Prisoners of War, where 1,354 inmates died. That number varies a little bit. Some sources have it to be a little bit higher, but over 1,000 inmates died at this federal military prison during the Civil War. So in large part, this, these deaths were due to a smallpox outbreak that happened in the camp. And so... These Confederates are buried at the Confederate Cemetery on Rosier Street in Alton. Today, only a small portion of the wall remains at the site of the prison with a memorial to Confederate soldiers. But again, um, they are buried. I don't know if it's in a mass grave or not. It didn't really say, but they are buried at the Confederate Cemetery that's in town. That's also extremely interesting. I also wanted to just throw this in real quick while I was thinking about it. Uh, as I was looking Altman up, I came across something that I found very, very interesting. I believe the gentleman's name is Troy Taylor, but he discussed something about an exorcism that also took place there that was apparently very, very famous. Can't remember exactly what it is now, but uh, later on in the show notes, I will make it a point to post a link down to where I found that information. That way you guys can read a little bit more about it. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for throwing that in there. So, so in summary, there's something going on in Alton, Illinois, and I want to get there and I want to figure it out. And if you happen to be in the area and you've got some more great information for us, let us know. We would, we're very interested in what's going on over there in Illinois. So let's switch gears here. And we've got one more key city 
small town, excuse me, to talk about. And that is a place called Bay City, Michigan. So Bay City, Michigan, as of July 2019, the population is estimated to be about 32,717 people, and it has also been declining in recent years. So Bay City is located 14 miles north of Saginaw, Michigan, which has just under 50,000, if you're familiar with Saginaw. If you're not, you're probably familiar with a place called Flint, Michigan, which has just short of 100,000 people, and Flint is... 50 miles south of where Bay City is located. And so if you're from the Michigan or the Midwest area, you might be familiar with the, the old um, mitten to try to describe locations in Michigan. If you're not, hold up your left hand for me. Bay City is located around the web of the hand, so right between your thumb and your index finger. If you're totally confused on what I'm saying, go look at a map as soon as you're done here. Telling you, it's a bit. So between the index finger and the thumb, that's about the area where Bay City is located. And so it is located along the Saginaw River. So there's something it has in common with Alton. And just miles from the Saginaw Bay. So we do have a lot of water fueling Bay City as well. And so by the classifications of NCES, Bay City would be considered a large remote town because it has more than 25,000 people. It, and it's also more than 35 miles from an urbanized area. Bay City is very interesting, in all honesty. Even if it's considered to be a larger town now, back in the day, it definitely wasn't. After the Civil War, which lasted from April 12, 1880s, uh 1861, excuse me, I'm so sorry, to April 9th of 1865, uh, many soldiers returned home in search of work. And at that time, Bay City uh being basically like what Sydney said and the web of your finger and thumb being right there next to the water, that was a huge port, uh, a lumber port to be precise. And so a lot of those gentlemen came home from the war and they were already used to being away from home for days or weeks at a time. And so for them to be out in the woods for days or even weeks, that was perfectly fine with them. Uh, whenever they came home, however, that's when they really go to the area that is now known as Hell's Half Mile. And that has quite a few interesting tales surrounding it. Like I said, in the later 1800s, it was a very large strip uh, solely dedicated to areas where these gentlemen could come home and just spend all their hard-earned money. Uh, there were dance halls, uh, gambling rooms, bars, brothels, uh, basically all the essentials for the working man, uh, specifically these lumberjacks who had been out for so long. A lot of the time, drunken brawls would happen or somebody would cheat in gambling and that would get a fight. One of the girls from the brothel would steal from one of the men. Uh, that would end poorly. It was honestly a brutal, brutal area. And this author that we're about to introduce has actually written a book about all of this area. And if you want to learn more about it, I highly, highly suggest getting her book uh, and taking a read of that. Tonight, we sit down with Nicole Beauchamp, a native of Bay City, Michigan, with a lifelong passion for the paranormal and history. Nicole founded the Tri-City Ghost Hunter Society in 2009. Since forming the group, she has presented at libraries and universities across the state of Michigan, 
with the goal of educating individuals on the paranormal and expressing the importance of preserving history through investigation. She has had the honor of co-lecturing with renowned paranormal researcher John Tenney, and her work has been featured in dozens of national and international publications. In 2015, she wrote a guest editorial for TAPS Para Magazine and was featured on Beyond Reality Radio, where she was recognized for her hard work and dedication to the paranormal by Jason Hawes, the star of Travel Channel's Ghost Nation. In February 2019, she was featured on the cover of Paranormal Underground Magazine. Nicole, as JC just said, just released a book this past fall, her first book, titled Haunted Bay City, Michigan which explores the notorious haunted locations in the town she grew up in, as well as the history behind these locations. She has agreed to join us tonight to talk about the hauntings of Bay City. Tonight, I'm not afraid of the dark, but there's something eerie going on in small town America. So to start off, um, I read your book. It was awesome, by the way. It was a nice, quick, easy read, um, which I appreciate because I'm not a huge reader. Um, and big, thick books kind of scare me sometimes. <laughs> um, so I, I did. I read that um, in my off time at work, and I really enjoyed it. And so when I was reading the book, it really reminded me. Now, Bay City's a little bigger, based on my research, than mm-hmm. um, the town I grew up in. But I grew up in a small town in Ohio. It's about an hour north of Columbus. It's called Galleon, Ohio. Um, yeah. And I grew up, and it was rumored to be haunted. So that's my whole childhood, even before, this is before I believed in ghosts and got into the paranormal and all that jazz. Um, but there was this book called Ghostly Galleon, and it was super popular throughout all of elementary school. And, you know, everybody read it and it was set up a lot like your story. Uh-huh. So as I was reading yours, that was in the back of my mind. Like, this is really cool because this reminds me of the place where I grew up. Right. So um, my first question for you is... What sort of stories did you hear growing up in Bay City? So when I was growing up in Bay City, I they did like some kind of Halloween um, tour. I can't really remember who put it on. I don't know if it was like the Historical Society. I highly doubt it. but Or if it was um, the theater here. But somebody put on like a Halloween tour and we got to like walk down water street, which is uh, probably the most historic street in Bay city. And they would tell us like that there was lumberjacks, you know, lumberjacks are spotted like outside of the, um, on the street. And Uh uh, Uh they would talk about, you know, the, the candy store. Um, It's not the candy store that I'm referring to is called St. Lauren brothers. It's actually not in the book. Um, but there was rumors that that was, that the basement was haunted there. Uh, I'm trying to remember where else I, I've heard that the Sage library was haunted, but I guess you could say like, I heard like little rumors here and there about places maybe being haunted, but they never really specified other than that lumberjack, like who it was or, anything like that it was it was very vague right so just like enough to pique your curiosity but nothing super definitive right exactly so did you learn about any news stories during your research did you find a lot of those while researching was it a mixture of the two yeah I mean to be honest with you 
between my invest, some of the investigations I've done uh, that were included in the book and doing the research for the book, I came to discover a lot about not only what people have reported as far as claims of paranormal activity, but who some of these uh, spirits, I guess you could say, uh, who they are rumored to be. Um, so I not only do, you know, not only, I'm sure as you know, with reading the book, that not only do you get like the history of the location, but you also get, uh, you know, the history of the people that, not not in every case, but, you know, you get kind of an idea of, of who's haunting the building and in the history, uh, you know, behind those people. For sure. And yeah, with you being... Um, an advocate of historical preservation and uh, history obviously that's super important so I really appreciated that about the book too um, and having a little bit of background knowledge of this is what this place was and so this is why we think this is who haunts it and so on and so forth so I found that to be very valuable uh, throughout the book well thank you yeah that was something that you know I said if I did this project I wanted to have a bigger platform uh, you know as far as bringing awareness to historical preservation so I felt like this was you know the perfect opportunity to do just that you know yeah absolutely so I'm a big JC and I are both big advocates on that as well so both of us I don't know if you know this or not uh, both of us used to work at the Ohio State Reformatory oh cool um, yeah in Mansfield Ohio before I moved Um, so obviously we are big supporters of preservation and um, there's a lot of forgotten buildings out there and Mm -hmm. uh it's, it's, it's really sad. So I thought that was great, not only for uh, the reader's knowledge, but also for each and every individual one of those places as well. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, you know, uh, some of these places are becoming a little more, I mean, I, okay. So all of them really are accessible to the public in some way, shape or form. It's just that they're not like that 24 seven. So some of the locations, you know, you, they put on events or whatever, and then people go, but you know, with bringing this, uh, there, I guess their story to the limelight, um, they're able to put on more events and make these buildings more accessible to the public, uh, which I think is great because a lot of the people, uh, that have read the book haven't even heard about some of those places before. For sure. Yeah. And every little bit, every little thing helps uh, a place like that, you know, even if it's just a dollar here, a dollar there, for sure. Oh, yeah. A long way. Oh, especially during a pandemic, too. (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) (laughs) So how do you think, just totally in your opinion, how do you think Bay City has been affected or if it has been affected by its paranormal activity? Has it been a positive? Has it been a negative? Has it brought in like tourism and the economy or is it really just sort of forgotten? I will be perfectly honest with you. Um, As far as the paranormal side of Bay City being a big thing, uh, it's not, I guess at this point in time, it's, it's getting bigger um, with, you know, the book and uh, there's some historical uh, tours and ghost hunts that are happening at the USS Edson, which is a Naval destroyer ship docked in Bay City. So Um, between their paranormal investigations and then, you know, my book, it's definitely 
I guess, catapulting the paranormal um, entertainment, I guess you could say, out there into this into society. But it's not been uh, that big of a thing until fairly recently. So I would say that generally the data that I have researched kind of shows that paranormal act or I guess claims of paranormal activity and paranormal events seem to bring seem to draw a crowd sometimes even larger than the city's population so for example the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum in Western West Virginia draws a larger crowd to it every year for different events or ghost hunts Uh, Because people, after it was on Ghost Hunters, people, you know, became profoundly interested in it. Right. And, you know, like I said, the amount of tourists, you know, are are just so large that it's actually larger than the population of the city itself. So I'm kind of finding that to be the case with Bay City, um, with what little data we have to go off of but I mean we have people that are coming from Canada we have people that are coming from England just to investigate this naval destroyer ship here Uh, so I would say it's a very positive thing but I'm working on making it an even bigger deal in the city I'm working with some of these locations on bringing it even more to the forefront that's awesome. Yeah. Well, I can see you got my attention. So my, my husband and I um, just got married this past summer and we actually honeymooned throughout the state of Michigan. Yeah. Um, including Mackinac Island. And uh, we went to Grayling. We went to Petoskey, Charlevoix. We just kind of did, you know, all over the state. And I saw your book come out and I was like, oh, the next time we go back, we have to go to Bay City and we have to go here. We have to go there. So um, for sure. I'm definitely one of those people that you have brought to Bay City and I will be for sure going there within the next five years. Yeah. And, you know, even having been from Bay City and, you know, living here for most of my life while I was doing research on the book, I mean, heck, I had to go take another trip downtown and, you know, look around because I just see it in a whole new light now. I mean, the history that was uncovered in my research was just fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. I could see that. And I kind of felt the same way uh, when I learned the stories of my town. You know, it's fun to drive around and yeah. um, see those things, how they looked or operated when they were built and not in, you know, 2020. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly yeah I was just saying that you know the other day I was like you know nowadays everything's just so cookie cutter and uh it's just like nobody puts their time and effort to building anything anymore everything's just so cheaply made but back back in the in the past you know these buildings were built to last I mean people would hand carve out wood and and everything I mean it was it was like these structures were very detailed and beautiful and opulent and they're just not like that anymore yeah absolutely and that's everywhere and that's super sad because these things have even without the paranormal activity it's just the architecture to them yep is something special definitely 
So obviously every town, you could ask anybody anywhere in America, has its share of ghost stories. But what do you, to you makes Bay City stand out? What do you consider that little extra that Bay City has? You know, with Bay City being the, I guess, medium-sized city that it is, uh, and not really being published that much in um, books or media or even on TV. I mean, there's been, like I said, you know, there's been a couple things here and there, uh, but it's never, Bay City has never been published on this type of scale. So my book really kind of brought Bay City to the forefront in a way that it has never been presented before and I think that makes it special in itself because you know I'm sure as someone who's interested in the paranormal you know as well as I do every time you watch a show or you watch you know um, a movie or read a book or I don't know just look online I mean it's the same places that you see over and over and over again and we have a crazy uh, amount of history here in our city that's very dark and deviant and violent and uh, you know debaucherous and I think that's worth exploring and checking out uh, because it's so much of like a summer town people come here for the fireworks display they come here for the tall ship celebration and these streets that they're walking on uh they have no clue you know the the dark history uh that that was once there in in that very area that they're walking in and i think you find a lot of times these places that are sort of in the shadows that nobody really knows about or talks about or makes TV, you know, makes the movies, it sometimes has the most interesting history and maybe even um, some of the best hauntings as well. Mm -hmm. I think you have just as good and maybe even better chance to walk into a place, uh, one of these places you talked about in your book, in Bay City, Michigan, and finding, you know, that once-in-a-lifetime shadow figure, apparition, EVP, whatever it is, as you would, you know, walking into a place like Alcatraz that everybody knows about, or like Mm -hmm. you uh, brought up Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. I mean, that's really easy to talk about, but to explore something like Bay City, for sure, that has, that in in and of itself is pretty unique. I know. I just, I guess another reason I really wanted to write this book was kind of to be like, listen, you know, these are some really good ghost stories. They are chilling. I mean, there's all kinds there. Some are heartwarming. Some are chilling. Some are just hilarious. Like the lady, (laughs) the Victorian lady in the supermarket, you know, and I realized that, you know, not every story in the book is about Bay city, but these are stories that are very worth sharing with, you know, with the world and, Uh, that haven't really gained the traction of a lot of other places. So I'm just very happy that I was able to, I guess, contribute some more spooky tales to the uh, (laughs) community. Yeah, for sure. I can definitely picture somebody, especially a local, but even somebody like myself or other people who are interested in this, you know, 
reading this as like a, a bedtime story sort of thing, or, you know, if you have kids and they want to hear a scary story, this would be a great resource to open up and read to them about something they haven't heard before. Yes. Uh, actually, my um, my uncle's been doing that with my cousins. <laughs> He's been reading on my book as, <laughs> uh, you know, chapters of my book for bedtime stories. And so, you know, he's already doing that. So, yeah, definitely you could implement that anywhere, really. That's hilarious. Um, so is there a particular spot in Bay City that sticks out to you? Because you wrote about a lot. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to figure out my favorite going through. So is there any place you have a special connection to? So there are two in the book. One is the Sage Branch Library. That is partially because I really, truly love everybody at the Bay County Library System. They're <laughs> awesome. I mean, they're awesome people. So supportive of everything I've done over the years. And, you know, it's just a pleasure to always work with them in any capacity. But the Sage Branch Library in itself is a gorgeous building. I have investigated it. I truly believe that it is haunted. And then my other favorite location from the book is the original Masonic Temple. Um, It's the architecture it has some moorish architecture it's definitely like not so much today i don't want to say because there was a fire and so a lot of the um really uh i guess uh, opulent rooftop was destroyed but it looked like something you would see coming out of like india or you know some of those other countries with such opulent beautiful architecture and it just really uh even today really stands out amongst the other buildings because it's so grand and so uh dated as far as its architecture goes yeah i was really impressed based on the photos you included of that as well i thought that was I agree. It, it doesn't look like it's something that belongs in this country, but it's here and that just makes it even more cool and appealing in my right, opinion. Right, yeah. It's like, and you know, there's so many rooms in there and so many like aspects and you can go there for late night movies. Uh, they they do plays there. Right now it's a little tough because of course of the coronavirus, but you know, it's like it's just kind of spooky in itself being in that building. Like we went to the uh, new year's party for uh, 2020, which why did we celebrate this year? I mean, <laughs> we should have, we should have, uh, somebody should have had an inkling that this year was going to suck. But uh, you know, we went to the 2020 new year's party. And of course we all dressed up like we were from the 1920s and you walked into the building and there was all kinds of like mood lighting and they had somebody playing jazz music in one of the rooms. And I swear to you, it was just like being back in time. It Honestly, I, I didn't even feel like I was in the era that I'm in any longer. It was beyond crazy. And it's just, that's the kind of vibe that building can give you if you, you know, set the mood for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Um, so if I'm, when, I should say when, I have the opportunity to make it to Bay City, and let's say I'm pushed for time, and my husband only allows me to go to one mm-hmm. place, 
what one place you gave me two of your favorites but what one place would you recommend i go if i'm looking for something i would definitely go to the masonic temple i would try to get to a production there or try to get to an event that they have there because that in my opinion is the most unique building out of the whole book and if you go on facebook and you type in historic Masonic temple, you should Mm -hmm. be able to just find it and they, you know, they'll post their events and it's, it's pretty incredible. So I would, if you come here, definitely come during a time that they are doing something because it'll definitely be worth it. Okay. I I will keep that in mind. I will put that on the travel (laughs) list. So now I want us to talk about the, we, we mentioned this a little bit earlier on, uh, but I want us to explore more of the connection between mm-hmm. history and paranormal activity. Cause obviously that's mm-hmm. there. And um, you're a person of history and historic preservation. I am as well. I'm actually a history oh, cool. teacher. Um, so I've, I've got um, a decent amount of background knowledge in it. So do you believe that a town or a location's history has a direct correlation with its paranormal activity? I think for the most part it does. Um, You know, and I, and I think that could be either negative or positive. I think there's a big, I guess, majority belief that, you know, it's always negative or negative elements, but I disagree. I think it can really go either way, but I think, you know, as long as there was, uh, something in the past that maybe isn't ready for whatever reason to go forward into the future, whether that was maybe a job that they loved or there was people there that they liked or even uh, the building itself, I think that um, could cause, you know, something to remain behind there, at least the energy. Yeah, I agree. Uh, with that for sure. And I, that just seems to kind of be the common conception amongst um, a lot of studiers of the paranormal is that the history has something more or less, like you said, not always negative, but more or less um, to do with the events or what used to go on in that town or that street or that city mm-hmm. or that land or whatever it might be. Oh, yeah, for sure. So on a related note, do you believe that negative people, so like people who are always you know, just negative Nancy's or um, grumpy all the time or somebody who, while they're living, enters the room and, you know, you can just sort of feel their negative energy and or negative events, Mm -hmm. obviously, produce a negative afterlife. Basically, I have known so many people that have walked into a room and were just so negative and I could just feel that energy from just even being in the same vicinity as them. So absolutely. Yes. I think 100%. If you were like a negative, uh, definitely carry over, you know, after you die. And I don't, I don't think that anything would, would change. I don't think between life and death, I don't think anything would change that, that energy that you emit, I guess. Right. And I would agree that I think that makes sense because we think of, you know, afterlife and spiritual and paranormal activity being 
energy related. And, you know, if you have a negative energy or positive energy, I feel like that would probably correlate. That makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. So now moving more towards not necessarily just focusing on Bay City, but focusing to your experience as a paranormal investigator. What is the best piece of evidence you have captured? The best piece of evidence that I probably have captured, well, it's kind of a toss-up between two different EVPs. So one of them, I was at the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum in West Virginia, which is my favorite place to investigate. (laughs) I was walking down the geriatrics ward. It was me and another female investigator. We were locked in for the night because we paid for a hunt. Uh... We did have other people on our team, but they were kind of in the command central area, which was really on the opposite end from where we were. And we heard what sounded like a hundred stretchers and med carts coming straight at us. Um, I was thankfully recording at the time. So I caught that on the recorder and you can hear like the wheels squeaking and everything else. Of course, in person, it was definitely loud. So the recording doesn't do, I guess, as much justice, you know, to um, real life. But I'm just thankful that I was able to capture that at all. Uh, right. My other, uh, I guess, best piece of evidence would have been when I investigated the Bella Park art gallery in Bay city, uh, we got a man on the recorder saying ma'am straight ahead. Once again, it was all female investigators there. It was in the middle of the night. So this is not generally a very busy area, uh, in the middle of the night. Um, because it's kind of like a, a businessy area. So, I mean, Generally, you're not going to see, like, too many people walking around. But uh, not only did we get that recording, but we saw, like, um, a Victorian man and woman outside of the the building itself. And then we got this man with, like, an English or Irish accent on the recording saying, ma'am, straight ahead. It just cuts over the top of... uh, females that were speaking there because they were like having a conversation and it just cuts right over the top and it's so distinctly male so distinctly foreign sounding it's it's fascinating yeah that's a cool one for sure it's always cool with the first one you said at trans allegheny to have it actually hear it with your ears and then to be able to corroborate that with evidence that's also cool and a pretty rare thing to happen too yeah. And you know, I could, I mean, geez, I've gotten some, just some great EVPs over the years. So <laughs> I guess, uh, the whole Jacob EVP. And if you read, read my book, then you'll know all about that. Maybe some people should pick mm-hmm. it up because that story about Jacob and getting the EVP with the name Jacob was spooky, but in, yeah. in a good way. I mean, it was kind of cool because we had this historical discovery just based on this first name that we got. So it was just completely awesome. Right. And isn't that perfect when it works out like that to where your research and your paranormal experiences match up with the history? Yeah. Well, you know, come to find out that this man was a pioneer of our city as well. And, you know, just because of his job, he was not seen as prestigious. So he was very much looked over. But 
you know, he was really one of the founding fathers of our city. Um, so I don't want to reveal too much, right? Because I want everybody to go out and buy your book. I got it on Amazon. It's all over. I'll add the link um, if you'd like me to when I uh, drop this podcast. Um, but one of the things that I was really enthralled with throughout the whole book and all those stories was the antique store. Um, simply because I have always wondered about what sort of attachments would be like in a place like that, that has all of these things from different parts of town or different parts of the state or even the world in one location without knowing the history to these places. Well, I'm going to be honest with you. I thought I was the only one who was kind of experiencing this, this feeling, but everybody, I almost everybody that I talked to says that when they go up to the second floor, which is the location really that I write about in the book. I mean, I talk about, you know, the basement as well and in the main Mm -hmm. floor, but uh, the second floor is rumored to be like the most haunted. And so many people uh, claim that there's a heaviness up there. Well, that's exactly what I experienced. And I never really told anyone that before, but it's just, I can't really put my finger on why. I mean, for all I know, maybe there is old wiring there or something. I'm sure there is, you know. Maybe that's contributing yeah. to my my strange feeling. Uh, but every time I go up there, it's like exactly the same. I don't feel right. I don't feel okay. I feel cloudy and dizzy and just spooked out entirely. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, that's, like I said, that's a very popular claim amongst people that go visit that location. And so I am kind of seeing uh, similarities, I guess you could say, as far as that goes. Yeah, agreed. So, yeah, I would be just intrigued to ever get the chance to investigate an antique store because there are just so many possibilities. You have no idea what you are getting into mm-hmm. because, you know, the building this antique that's from China and this one that's from India and this one that's from my grandma's house. You just, you have, you have no idea. Yeah. It's, I don't want to say the whole thing's creepy because it's not, (laughs) but it's definitely when you go there, there is a feeling of being watched and it's a definitely a feeling of either being watched or followed. And there's just such a heaviness like I said, especially on the second floor, it's just too hard to ignore. So I tell everybody, you know, if you want to come to Bay City, definitely check out the Antique Center because it's kind of a staple of Bay City. We have such a huge and interesting Antique Center here. Um, but go up to the second floor, you know, and see if you can have that experience that I wrote about in the book. Yes, maybe I will be adding that on our stop we're in Bay City as well. Yeah. <laughs> Buy a souvenir, take it home. Hope nothing follows right. us. So um, many of the locations, I found this kind of interesting that you talked about in the book, didn't have necessarily a tragic history or necessarily somebody that had died there, uh, but still definitely seemed to be very haunted. So what do you think keeps a spirit at a specific location like this that's different from their place of death? Um, 
I think it just really comes down to if they maybe had an affinity for that location. Like we see that with the caretaker at the USS Edson. He just absolutely loved that ship and, you know, spent most of his time there and he never wanted to leave the ship. So when he died, you know, he just never left even in death. He, he, his spirit or soul or whatever remained there. And I think that's the case with a lot of other places. Um, But, you know, it just kind of begs the question, is there different dimensions that maybe we are not conscious of? Or is there such a thing as like, I don't want to say time travel, but with these dimensions, some kind of like play on time travel, I guess you could say. I don't know how to exactly word it, but... um, for example, the um, Victorian lady that showed up in the middle of the supermarket looking around confused and then she was gone. Uh, you know, is that yeah, just that she slipped into our dimension? I mean, I don't know the... This is all just... I know this probably sounds like totally crazy, but it is, I guess, a legitimate... Um, theory in the in the paranormal world that this could be like a thing because we don't we're never really gonna know what the truth is until we die (laughs) so i mean is is it just the energy or is it you know is it a, a shifting of dimensions so that's a big mystery yeah, and like you said, it's going to remain a, a mystery, at least for the time being, until right. um, <laughs> we figure out how to go to their dimension and back or whatever's going on. But that's a very interesting take on it. And I, obviously, I know you're not making this up, but as uh, a theory that's out there, uh, along with many other things that could explain this. I'm not going to rule it out. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, it's like, why would that woman just have been there and looking around all confused and then five seconds later she's gone I mean I can't even imagine like to me that's totally crazy but um you know maybe when I die maybe I'll have an experience like that I won't be able to you know write a book about it then but (laughs) (laughs) but I'll I'll try to tell somebody like if I pop up somewhere in a you know in a supermarket I'll just be like "Uh, where the hell am I and like, what year is it? Please tell me, because I don't think I belong here. <laughs> exactly. And that sounds crazy, but it's almost, it's just, it's the way it works. I always tell people when I used to give tours at the reformatory and um, I would always try to explain to people how it's not an exact science. And that is so important for them to understand that it's not an exact science. And you know what? You might turn around and somebody's going to tell you something different than what I just told you. But yeah. That's because that's not an exact science, you know, and this worked for me and this worked yeah. for them. And so that's, um, that answers all my questions that I had for you. Did you have anything else you wanted to add or to share? Well, um, people can definitely find me at facebook.com slash author Nicole Beauchamp. And I'm sure many of you don't know how to spell my name. So it's N-I-C-O-L-E-B-E-A-U-C-H-A-M-P. That page uh, has basically anything that I'm doing, any events will be posted on that page. 
And I have a lot of really cool events scheduled for next year. So if you are ready to get out of your quarantine next year and have some fun, check out my page and come to some of those events. All right. Well, thank you for taking the time to uh, speak with us tonight. Well, thank you for having me. I, I greatly appreciate you both. Thank you again, Nicole Beauchamp, for sitting down to talk with us tonight. If you are interested in purchasing her book, Haunted Bay City, Michigan, or have questions for Nicole or her paranormal team, please reach out to her using the links provided in the episode description. So, Sydney, what's your best piece of evidence? Oh, that's a tough question. So, um, I've had a lot of great paranormal experiences, but in all honesty, I've had a very slim, a very small selection of actual evidence in terms of something that I can physically bring home and show to everybody and say, look what I captured. So I would have to say that it's, it's close, but my, probably my best piece of evidence came from the Crestline Cemetery. And so um, in order for me to explain you the situation, you, you got to understand the lead up to it. So I was out in Crestline Cemetery, which is about 10 miles, give or take, from my hometown. Um, I was probably 16 or 17 years old at the time, and I was with a friend. And we had an iPod that had the Ovulus app on it. Now, I wouldn't recommend, I never recommend phone apps for ghost hunting. I mean, there might be some decent ones out there, but this was free. If it's free, it's probably never accurate. But anyways, we had it and we were using it. And I'm not saying that the, I'm not at all advocating for the ovulus here. I'm just saying this is how the situation happened. So ovulus pops up and I'm just reading what it says. So we're in the cemetery and ovulus says railroad. And so we walk over towards where the railroad tracks were, the railroad town, not surprising. And then it says cross. Okay. So we keep walking down the tracks, which is a very smart thing to do. And we found where the tracks crossed. And we're like, okay, tracks crossed, got it. And then it said something to the effect of like tunnel or creek. I I don't remember exactly. And there happened to be at the railroad tracks where they crossed this sort of tunnel area that had like a creek running through it. Okay, so, you know, we're just going with the flow here. We go in and we, we step inside this tunnel. My friend's in there. I take a photo of her. We go on about our day. Well, later on, when we were, you know, out trying to rouse up spirits, I'm looking at the photos and I say, holy crap, do you see this? And this isn't going to make sense to you because I can't show you the photo. But this in this photo right next to where my friend was in this, it was like the circular enclosed like tunnel for a creek. Okay. There is sticking out of the wall. You can see about shoulder up this figure. And that's all I'm going to say. I'm not going to speculate what it was. I have no idea. It didn't necessarily look like a person, but it was definitely sticking out of the wall and you could see the shoulders and the the outline of a head of some sort of figure. And that's all I can say about it. Sounds spooky. <laughs> I think my personal best piece of evidence, sadly, I don't have the recording of what happened, but... At the Ohio State Reformatory, this was a little after you left, Sid, 
pal of mine uh, named Lindsay uh, and I were just kind of out and about, just trying to see if anybody needed help, trying to do a little bit of investigating ourselves, see what we could pick up on. And as we got up to the third floor area where the guards quarters were, uh, we came across these three gentlemen who invited us to come inside of uh, one of the guards bunk rooms with them to do a little bit of an EVP session. So of course we were just like, yeah, absolutely. Let's go. Like, and the one gentleman had explained that he had three different EVP recorders on him. One of which costs, uh, I think about, I think he said $2,000 just to get this specific one. It was a very, very pricey piece of equipment, but it was also very, very old and very, very accurate. This was the kind of EVP recorder that every paranormal <laughs> investigator dreams of. It picks up every little tiny sound. It is phenomenal, but you have to have complete silence to do it. But so that's the one we elected to use just because Lindsay and I wanted to see how it really worked. And so as we were in this room, uh, which we now very affectionately call Mix Room, we were communicating with this spirit who's known to be a little bit on the angrier side. Uh, he's always been kind of grouchy. I personally believed it was just because of people just kind of entering his space, not really giving two cares about who and or what's in there. But Anyways, as we were in there, we used to refer to this gentleman as the grumpy man. And as we were recording, I asked, hey, is there anything else that you would like us to call you? Like, what's your name? That way we don't have to call you the grumpy old man anymore. Because I just feel like that's rude. And clear as day through the spirit box, we got Mick, which was awesome. But as soon as I said that and he said his name, one of the gentlemen looks over at me and he goes, oh, he's grouchy, is he? And I was like, yeah, he doesn't really care for people too well. He doesn't like people in his face all that much. I just try to be respectful. And he goes, oh, well, okay, I'm going to try something. This gentleman immediately starts provoking Mick, which Lindsay and I started to tell him, don't, don't, don't. You're not allowed to do that here. You can't do that. And he's like, oh, well, it's okay. You can hit any of us three guys in the room, but don't hit any of the ladies. And I was like, all right, you're a real macho man. But when you go down, I'm not helping you. Uh, <laughs> and now when I start to tell this next part of the story, please do know that I am just saying word for word what I heard come off of this recording. As he was sitting there talking, he was telling Mick that he was going to take his room. This was his space now. He needed to get the heck out. He didn't belong there. This, that, and the other. Just the typical provoking that you would see from Zach Baggins <laughs> that you should never actually do on a paranormal investigation. And so I ended up was just like, dude, please stop doing this. Just turn the recording off. Let's just listen back to it, see what he says. And if he's telling us to get out or anything, we just need to go. So thankfully, they actually agreed, and we sat down, and we played the recording session back. And as you hear the man taunting uh, and everything, he goes to take a pause to allow Mick some time to respond to him. And plain as day, this was a class, A-E-V-P, we all heard, I'm going to kick your ass. We were immediately horrified. 
I was like, we need to go now. I don't, I, I'm not having any of this. I need to get out of this room. I'm not about to get beat up by a spirit. <laughs> can't defend myself against what I can't see. Not having any of it. So thankfully we ended up leaving and going to our next location. But that by far has to be my best piece of evidence just because not only did we get a class A EVP, but there were four other people in the room with me that can confirm that story. It was yeah, awesome. Yeah, and that's the important thing there. So I know we haven't done a lot of sharing evidence yet and we will um but jc and i are not the kind of people who are like oh that's a ghost i mean we're believers and like you can convince us or we're not the people who don't think you can ever capture evps or could ever capture photos it's just very rare so i think in my years of investigating this photo at the mm -hmm. cemetery has been the only time i have ever caught on a still footage what i think to be some sort of paranormal entity and so we've we've had our fair share of EVPs as well, but it's not where we're walking around every day getting a million EVPs on a recorder. That's not at all the case here. Yeah, very few times have I ever actually gotten decent EVPs. Sometimes you think you hear something, but you're not quite sure if you're actually hearing something or if it's somebody down the hall. So I typically don't tend to trust EVPs, but I know for a fact there was nobody on that floor because like I said, it has to be perfectly quiet in order for that thing to record. And just the spine chilling of, I'm going to kick your ass. Like it just, that hit us all like a wave. And we all immediately felt this huge, just negative presence just hit us all right in the face. And like I said, that's when I was done. But speaking of negative energies, and kind of going back to the interview, I think it's very interesting that Miss Nicole mentioned uh, how negative energies can be imprinted on objects. Uh, and I'm not sure if that's what's kind of going on with Mick from kind of what I understand about what she was talking about, which is actually referred to as stone tape theory. It's more of a residual energy. And if something emotional or traumatic occurs, it can be recorded uh, almost by the woodwork, the stonework, or other items, creating an impression that can almost be replayed under specific conditions like something maybe like a specific date or a time, an anniversary, or even just somebody walking into the room that just resembles somebody in that situation could even just spark that stone tape theory up, basically. That residual energy is typically what you would probably think of it as. But that was a very, very interesting point that she came up with. And that is something that you will very commonly see, I believe anyways. Um, most of the things that I've encountered are typically stone tape theory, especially just from where I have investigated mostly. Uh, yeah, and so to make this a little bit more clear for some of our listeners, because this is still kind of uh, a new thing for JC and I, the stone tape theory. I mean, we knew about it, but we didn't necessarily call it by this name. So for all of my ghost hunter, original ghost hunter fans out there, this is sort of what Grant Wilson uses to describe a residual haunting. Like JC brought up, of this, these tend to be residual. So if you recall, Grant Wilson always described residual as activity being like a tape player and always playing itself over and over and over and over again. So it's not necessarily interacting with you. It's just, you know, a guard walking down the hallway because it's eight o'clock in the morning and he's doing his eight o'clock count. Or, you know, this is cups banging on the, the bars because there's, there's a fight and it's the anniversary of that fight. 
or whatever that might be. So um, as JC said, um, not only is that we think of that as being residual, but the stone tape theory is that same thing, that tape recorder playing it over and over and over again, but you gotta include that stone part, which literally means like she said, either woodwork or like limestone. So we think about limestone deposits and places that are built on limestone or of limestone or of any stone tend to have more paranormal activity. These are one and the same. So these ideas are connected. Exactly. And it's, it's very fascinating. Like I said, especially because of, if you all remember beforehand, I talked about the only place that I've really investigated is out at the Ohio State Reformatory. So you can imagine there's a lot of that uh, stone tape theory uh, there, I do believe anyways. Well, thank you for joining us tonight as we explored the eeriness that's going on in small town America. Join us next time as we go back to our roots and take you inside one of America's most haunted prisons. We are not afraid.